standing and join me in reciting the Shema, which the Lord Jesus would have recited every day of his life. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our scripture this morning is from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our scripture this morning comes at the end of our sermon series on John, and John is in no doubt bookending for us where we have been and in a sense who Jesus is. And I got to thinking this week this reality of how we start and how we finish. I was with a mentor this week, a friend of mine who has six kids, and his two kids, the oldest and the youngest, the family refers to them as the bookends. And they refer to themselves as the best of the six. And as you get to know them, one of the things that they say is that all of the attributes of the family are contained in them. It is the beginning and the end, in a sense, of the narrative of their family. And they joke that all of this story is contained in that. I remember as a child when I would look Uh, on the shelves of books in libraries and see the big anthologies where the stories were so large they took up more than one volume and you'd see all the different volumes. And I was always impressed with the grand arc or narrative of the story and what would go into a story that big and that deep with all involved. And as I grew up, I began to discover what was actually in those books. And then when I went off to school, I learned a little trick that you actually don't have to read all the books. See, in graduate school, we had a class that began with the professor teaching us that we had more work than we could do. We had more to read than we had time for. So she taught us to triage books. And it was one of the most impactful lectures I had ever heard. She began and she said, here is a book, and today we are going to teach you how to read a book. And I thought, I've finally gotten to grad school, and I'm finally now learning to read. But actually what she was teaching us was the arc of the story, how to gather the contents of the story in a short amount of time. So she takes what was actually her book, and she shows us the cover, and she shows us the inside flap of the book and what it describes. And then we look through the table of contents. And without ever having read her book, she asks us what the book is about. And in a sense, we are to fill in the contents of that story, only knowing the table of contents. And then we dive in deeper and we read the introduction to the book. And then we read the conclusion to the book. And she says, 
Now, with these parts of the book, can you tell me what this story is about? And it was surprising to see a room full of uneducated students who had never taken her class nor read her material be able to explain back to her what was in her book, at which time she would make a joke about whether she needed to write it at all. Great stories have this reality, this arc, this importance where they are focusing on the same thing from beginning to end, and the beginning introduces us to such important things, plot, character, arc, where we are going, intention, obstacle, all these different things. And then in the conclusion, we see all these things wrapped up. Think of great stories we know about with, for instance, the Odyssey, the story of Odysseus's journey home from the Trojan War. This is the entire arc of this story. Other details happen within it, but we know from just that quick summation some of the things that could happen. Think of Casablanca, the story of Humphrey Bogart, wanting to get out of Casablanca to get to America, and we actually learn in the journey it's more about his support and cause for the war. Or as I like to think of Star Wars, the fight against evil, but when we start to see what's actually going on, this discovery of the true identity of Luke Skywalker. Luke, I am your father. You can't think of these stories without thinking of these parts of these great arcs or narratives. These writers focus in on these key parts and keep us fixed on this story. And John is no different in his gospel. John is first and foremost fixated on this person of Jesus and who he is, and he never departs from it. You see, the whole focus of John's gospel is summed up for us in the end of chapter 20. Chapter 20 is the original end of the gospel of John. And in verse 31, John sums up the point of his whole story. These are written that you may believe and continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the whole thing, the whole point of the article, of this gospel, of this collection of these stories that John has put together to remind us of this reality of who this man, Jesus, is. And as John reminds us, he is not just a man, he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah himself so that we might continue to believe and have life in his name. So let's dive into this ending part, this important bookend to the reality of the Gospel of John and see what John is unpacking for us. Because as you see with the one day of the year that we're allowed to have fire in the building, this is an important day in the life of the church. Many celebrate it as the birthplace the, the birthday of the family of God. Uh, and John presents us with, in a sense, an alternative narrative of the story of per- Pentecost. You see, there's two versions in the scriptures of Pentecost. The one that most of us are familiar with from Acts chapter 2, uh, which we heard read this morning, which harkens back to Exodus 20, where Moses gets the word, where Moses goes up onto the mountain and the mountain rumbles and shakes and fire descends, and smoke descends, and God comes and is in Moses' presence and delivers the commandments. 
Acts chapter 2 hearkens back to this reality. As I like to think of it, it is a public time when the Spirit falls on all flesh, as Joel predicts, and the church is never the same. Well, for all you introverts out there who don't like going to the party, I have good news. Because John gives us another account of Pentecost that we see this morning. It is in a small room with the doors locked for fear of the authorities finding them. And Jesus himself appears in the room to a group of the disciples. Now notice it's an unnamed, non-specific group. But when John is reflecting on the disciples, he is reflecting on us the body of Christ, the people who would bring the reality of the truth of the love of God to the world. Jesus shows up in the room and breathes on them. All week I kept thinking of my younger brother who had come up behind me without me knowing and just breathe on me with like a warm moist breath that you could feel in the back of your neck. And I thought, what an odd idea. Jesus coming in and breathing on the disciples. But don't throw it out. It's a very important reality. John is hearkening back to Genesis 2 in this creation narrative where God breathes life into man. Man made out of dust. Man that is nothing but from the earth until the very breath of God enters his lungs And there is life, and it is full. This word of breath is also also wind. So when Acts 2 talks about this mighty wind, it's using a similar word that John is using at the end of his gospel. But notice he is using it in this very personal and intimate way where God comes to us and breathes on us the very breath of life. And that makes sense, but it's not left just there at that level. You see, John is a master of imagery. And in this story, he is continuing to call back for us, the readers, all this richness from the Old Testament, so much that have gone before. And as we talked about the bookends to start this morning, John begins his gospel in a similar way, starting off with this laser-like focus on Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John starts his gospel telling the story of Jesus, proclaiming him as being the word made flesh and being in the beginning with God, that all things are created through him. See, John, from the beginning of his gospel, is setting up this narrative to say, before all things was Jesus, who is God and through whom all things are made. John continues these references to Jesus throughout, as we see in his seven I am statements throughout scriptures. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. And then finally in John 15, I am the vine. You can almost hear him hearkening back to Exodus 3, where God reveals himself to Moses and says, I am. I am that I am. It's this identity of Christ that John is setting up for us throughout his gospel. And then we see this great importance of the Holy Spirit. This foretelling of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which John harks on time and time again in chapters 14 through 16, telling us and the disciples so much about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit will do. Jesus goes so far as to say, it is better that I leave you so that I might pour out the Holy Spirit. He will guide you into all truth. This is why Jesus must go, to send the Holy Spirit. And so we know John can't end his gospel without Jesus coming and pouring out his Spirit on the disciples. We see this reality where John is painting this overarching narrative of who Jesus is as Son of Man, who Jesus is as Messiah, and Jesus' final act to prepare us, his disciples, to carry out his love into the world is to pour out his Spirit. This reality of God, this risen Christ who comes afresh and anew, makes a grand entrance on a grand stage to set the scene for today, the morning of this passage exists in the garden where they have laid Jesus in the tomb. And Mary Magdalene goes early in the morning to see what has happened and finds there a man who is living, who we realize later is Jesus, but she recognizes as the gardener. And yes, we are in the garden. She is speaking with the gardener. John again is hearkening back to the garden in the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2. And calling him the gardener is calling up the reality of who Adam was. The original creation. The fallen man, in a sense. And Jesus is saying, no, I am the risen Christ. I am the new Adam. And I have made here a new creation. This all happens on the eighth day, which is not coincidence either. You see, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and then on the seventh day, he completed creation and rested from his work. And as we see Jesus rise from the grave and come out into the garden, we see him and encounter him on the eighth day in a new creation, in a new garden where all has changed. And now this life, this world, this earth, and this universe which Jesus created created and was in and through and by and sustains from the beginning, now he shows up in a new way as the risen Christ to come and say, all things are now different. This is what we have been preparing for you for the entire narrative and the entire story. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? The risen Christ rises on the eighth day to a new spiritual reality. 
and ushers in a new reality for us, pouring out his spirit on all flesh. You see, Jesus comes and has accomplished what he has set out to do, what God has sent him to do by conquering sin and death, and we are merely sent out and equipped to implement that. He has accomplished this work, and we get to live it out. And the last thing that he pours out on us, his church, is his spirit. And he says, go and do as I have done. And he spreads his hands, and he shows the marks of the cross. And he reminds us and his disciples, forgive those you encounter as I have forgiven. I am sending you out as I have sent, been sent by the Father. He reminds us of his mighty acts on the cross. He shows us the marks on his hands and he breathes the breath of life. The very spirit that has sustained him through all creation and then up to this time in the power of resurrection. And he hands off his work to us. And he says, go and do likewise. Go out into the world and love the sick and the lost. Go out to the world and care for the needy. Go out to the world and love and forgive as I have. Amen.